0: In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons for days and years. And God said, that the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of, on the earth of every kind. And it was so. Then God said, let us make humankind so god created humankind in his image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them and when god saw all that he had made he said it was very good this is the word of the lord you, god. last month in washington gail and i went again to the air and space museum Gail's father was an active pilot for more than 50 years, and we were interested in seeing everything from the Wright brothers' plane uh, to vehicles we've sent to the moon and brought back again. As I stood there looking at our first little satellite we put into space, it was hardly bigger than a basketball. I remember being in high school when the Russian Sputnik went into space, how frightened we all were. We knew that we had enough weapons to destroy the Soviet Union many times over, but they had enough to destroy us many times over as well, and now they were definitely ahead of us. They had a satellite in space. We did not. In the fall of 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected president. In January of 1961, he said, within 10 years, we Americans will put men on the moon and bring them safely home again. That happened eight and a half years later in July of 1969. But I remember Christmas Eve, the winter before, in 1968. We sent our first spacecraft with men on board around the moon. It did not land, but it went round the moon. And when it went round the moon and came within eyesight of our planet again we heard the first words all of us remembered when the first Russian cosmonaut had gone into orbit around the earth and landed safely he boastfully said I looked everywhere and there is no God and one of our astronauts was reading in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth let's take a look at this passage In the beginning, God. For more than 150 years, the best Jewish scholars and the best Christian scholars have known that Moses did not write the first five scrolls in the Bible. The best scholars in Judaism and the best scholars in Christianity now know that there are four different sources in the Torah. In five scrolls, four different sources. We believe that the Jews told stories around campfires for hundreds of years. And after David succeeded in reuniting north and south tribes, finally, with Solomon's temple and an educated priesthood, those stories could be written down. The older strand, the oldest of the four, is called J. Because many of the scholars who were doing this work were Jews. And Y, J, have a sound the same in German. The J is a Y sound. Yah ja is J A, not Y A. And so Yahweh became in German this J. And so that source is called J. Where God is called, Eye Asher Eye, I am who I am, the J writer. They're long passages where God is called exclusively El or Elohim. Those passages have other characteristics that set them apart, but scholars call those passages the e source or Elohist. We know there is a scroll called Deuteronomy and that it did not appear at the time of J or E, that in fact it suddenly appeared when Josiah was king. And so scholars in both faith communities call that D or the Deuteronomist. And the fourth source, P, for the priest. The priest, taking oral tradition from the southern tribes, we believe J, and the northern tribes, E, taking D along with those two, and then adding commentary, forming bridges to tie the stories together. Dr. Gunter Plaut, one of the famed rabbis of this century, has written Genesis 1 is definitely a P document written by priests when our people were enslaved again this time in Babylon. Rabbi Nahum Sarna of equal credentials has written there is no question today Genesis 1 is from the P tradition. It was written by priest in Babylon during that captivity in the 6th century before the Common Era. Next year's Barton Clinton Gordy presenter here at Boston Avenue will be Dr. Walter Brueggemann. In his commentary on Genesis he says when you read Genesis 1 you need to remember that in that 6th century before the Common Era People believed that whoever had the stronger army must have the greater God. The people of Judah had seen their beautiful temple ransacked and burned. They had seen the royal palace ransacked and burned. They had seen the gates burn from the hinges that protected Jerusalem. They had seen the walls tumble down. They had seen the young sons of the king brought in in front of their father and killed right in front of him so he would know there will be no more from the throne of David. And then they gouged out his eyes and force-marched him and the other best and brightest all the way to Babylon. It was there when people were starting to ask, is the Babylonian God greater than Judah's God? That the priest wrote. The priest wrote Genesis 1 to tell the people of Judah Babylon's God is not the God, your God is the God who created heaven and earth. 150 years after the priest wrote Genesis 1, in Athens, a baby was born who would be named Plato. As he grew, he would study under the great mind Socrates. Socrates would be put to death, made to drink the poison, because he was saying things the average Greek did not want to hear. But Plato continued the work of his mentor, and in time came to the question, is there a supreme being or not? And the way Plato dealt with that, you remember, was by saying everything that has life moves, even plants move. But everything that moves is itself moved by something else. But if one could go back to the mover before that, and the mover before that, and the one before that, one would finally come to something which first moved and was not itself moved by anything else an unmoved mover. When Plato was in his 40s, a baby was born 150 miles north of where he lived in Athens, a baby who would grow up to be a very bright young man himself who would travel that 150 miles south to study under Plato. His name was Aristotle. When Plato taught Aristotle, Plato was already in his mid-sixties, but Aristotle was a quick learner. He would later become tutor to Alexander the Great. Aristotle went back over all the teachings of his mentor and said, Well, movement doesn't help me as much as thinking of cause. Something caused you to set the alarm last night. Something caused you to get up when the alarm went off this morning dress yourself and come to the church to worship on this Father's Day, this second week in Pentecost. But something caused, something caused, something else caused but if one goes back far enough, one would surely come to something which first caused and was not itself caused by anything else. The uncaused cause. Well, the Jews will have none of that. No, they would say, wait, wait, wait a second. You know who God is. God is the one who visited our father Abraham, our mother Sarah, and told these two people, too old to have children, you're going to have a son. This is the one who visited their son Isaac and sent somebody out to find a wife for him, and he loved Rebekah, and they had twin sons. And the younger of those two twins would be named uh, Jacob. And Jacob would father 12 sons who would eventually become heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons, Joseph, would save his people during famine down in Egypt. And then our people would be enslaved for 400 years. And then our God would confront Moses in a burning bush on Mount Sinai and send him back to Egypt. You know who God is. God is the one who has come to meet Israel again and again and again. Number two. This passage uses a verb that is used only of God. One verb in Hebrew that never has any other subject except God. Now, in English, we use the word create to describe any number of different activities by different people. We speak of a musician who creates a new anthem, a new song, an artist who creates some work of art. But in Hebrew, there is one word that has only one subject, and that subject is God. The word in Hebrew is spelled simply B-R, because there were no vowels but if you add an A after the first consonant and an A after the second one and give them a long A sound in English, it becomes bere. And God bere, the heavens and the earth. And in that 27th verse, it says it three times. I think I'll create homo sapien. I think I'll create humans. I'm going to create them in my own image. I create I create them male and female. Be-re. Gail and I love to see beautiful paintings. And we would say beautiful, we usually tend to go way back before there were cameras. And artists still painted things in a day when there were no cameras, so paintings had to look like what was being painted. You know, those. One of our favorite artists is Titian. Titian's works have been sold to great museums in various parts of the world. So you can see a couple of Titians in one great museum and a couple in another great museum. We were in the Louvre in Paris again just a little over a year ago. Uh, The first time we had gone to Paris, we were a part of a busload of people. And when these buses pull up to the Louvre, you have about 45 minutes. There are three pieces of art that everybody knows are in that great museum, and the buses always rush you to those three. You go to see Venus de Milo, you go to see Winged Victory of Samothrace, and you go to see Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. There are always several hundred people clustered around those three. If you get away from them, the rooms are often almost empty, and there are hundreds upon hundreds of paintings. I told you that the last time we went in to see the Mona Lisa, there must have been 300 people in the room. They've got to where they have it in a room all by itself because so many people want to see it. They now have a guard standing on either side of the painting, and there's a rope there to keep you from getting closer than maybe six or eight feet. And most people are very nice, sort of gradually moving their way to the front as the front row sees and moves around the side and go on. I saw people who didn't want to wait that long and they were holding up little tiny cell phones from 40, 50 feet away and flashing and running out the door to prove to somebody or other they had seen the Mona Lisa. But if you get into the quieter rooms, you can see really wonderful works of art. And we saw one of Titian's paintings called The Crowning with Thorns. But here it is in the wrong setting. Titian did not paint this for the Louvre in Paris. He painted it for a cathedral in Milano. When Gail and I were in Venice, we went to the cathedral called Frare. There's a Titian there. In that magnificent cathedral, there is a Madonna it's one of the most beautiful things you have ever seen in your life. Hanging, mounted in the church. I wish I could have seen crowning with thorns in the Santa Maria della Frazzi in Milano. It would have been so different. This horrible crown of thorns crushed down on the head of Jesus, blood already starting to course down his face it's moving anywhere. It's moving more moving had it been in the church because it's at the synagogue and in the church that we know this one who alone bere, who alone creates. Number three, I purposely did not read all of that first chapter and the first three verses of the second, but I read again and again and then God said, and then God said, and then God said. Because that's what the writers wanted you to focus on. Three years ago, Gail and I were at Flossenburg in Germany. One of the places we wanted to go that year was the concentration camp where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. In college, and seminary, I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work I was so taken by what this young man had written in his 20s and early 30s. It was amazing what a keen mind he had. was already doing lectureships in the United States when he was in his mid and late 20s. The greatest seminaries in our country were bringing him over. But when the Nazis came to power, he went home to be with his people with people who were being critical of Adolf Hitler, critical of the Nazis. He was thrown into concentration camp. And finally, just two weeks before the forces arrived, the Allied forces, and liberated the camp at Flossenburg, he was taken out one cold spring morning, stripped of all his clothes, and hanged. We stood there, the very spot where he died. One of the things he wrote was this. The only continuity we have with the Almighty is his word. You think about it. Some people say God is a falling snowflake. God is an autumn leaf. Well, he isn't. We may see his handiwork in a snowflake or a beautiful leaf in autumn, but they are not God. God is the holy other. And the continuity between God and humans is the Word. Last month, Gail and I were at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington. This was near the end of almost three weeks, and... Bill and I do not rest on vacation. We get up early and we go into the evening time. We walked and walked and walked. I was wearing a little pedometer, and we were walking every day from four to as many as nine miles, most of it up and down corridors of museums. And late one afternoon, we're in one of the beautiful museums in Washington. Almost everybody else is gone by this time. The hallways are almost completely empty, and we got two more floors to go. Now, often the map just says 1700s, 1600s, 1500s or something, and she said, well, I'll check this one out, and you check that one out, and if you find something really good, let me know. And I found something really good. In Amsterdam, you hear that two of the most famous and beloved painters in the Dutch history Along with Van Gogh, of course, everybody knows about him. And Rembrandt, you know, is very, very popular. But there were two others back there. One was Johannes Vermeer, and the other was named Gabriel Metsu. Now, somehow Vermeer's paintings got spread around the world. You can see paintings of his in any number of museums. Just a couple here, a couple there. But while we were in Washington, there was a special collection of paintings of Gabriel Metsu. One was called The Dismissal of, of, uh, of uh, Hagar and Her Son Ishmael. Now, Metsu, of course, had never been to Israel. He didn't really know what Bedouins look like living in tents, following water. And so. so he had Abraham and Sarah living in a house, in a Dutch house. And Abraham was wearing Dutch clothes of 400 years ago. This is back in the 1600s. Uh, 400 years ago, this is what a Dutch man would have dressed like. This is what a Dutch woman would have dressed like. This is what a Dutch child would have dressed like. And this was a house that Dutch people would have lived in. But there's Sarah hanging out one of the windows, shaking her hand and telling Abraham to get rid of this woman and her child. There was another beautiful painting there called A Man Writing a Letter. 400 years ago, A Man Writing a Letter. And then there was a painting called A Woman Reading a Letter. And then there was a picture of a beautiful young woman and a hunter dangling fresh-filled game in front of her eyes. Now you know that in Europe back there this is very suggestive. A hunter dangling fresh killed game means I'll trade you something really nice for something really nice from you. Gabriel Metsu's painting has the young lady slipping her foot out of her shoe, but her hand is sort of reaching for the Bible on the desk nearby. Dr. Brueggemann says, God speaks, and we're supposed to listen, and then we're supposed to answer. Number four. I think I'll create homo sapien, humans. Yeah, I'm going to create them in my own image. Males and females. That's what I'm going to do. And the first five days he had said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And that sixth day he said, that was very good. I really did a very good thing today. One of the major networks this past month, the month of June, had asked, who wants to write in and tell us about the most wonderful father in America? We'll judge. You send in your letters. And one young woman named Lindy Groover wrote, I am in college, but something happened to my family eight years ago when I was 13 that will tell you for sure I got the greatest dad in America. She said, I was one of three girls, the middle one. My older sister was in a car with other teenagers. Now, they live in Bedford County, Virginia. It's a predominantly rural area. And she said she was riding in this car, driven by a teenage boy. There were several in the car. He got distracted. He lost control. He crossed the highway. He hit a tree. My sister was killed. I had never felt such pain in my life, she said. My sister, I loved her, my older sister. And though I was only 13, I decided, I am never going to care that much for anybody else again. It hurts too much when they're gone. I think my mother made a similar decision and I think my younger sister made a similar decision but not my dad. My dad started going to the schools and saying, I want to talk to teenagers about not driving when they're distracted. No telephones, no texting, not much music, not too much going on. The driver has to be focused. When school administrators loved what he was saying and the way he was saying it, they decided they needed more money so that they could carry on a bigger campaign. He organized a triathlon there in Bedford County, Virginia to raise money, getting sponsors from shoe companies and singlets and so on, and they raised more and more money to help him and others go and tell the story. Please do not drive when you're distracted. And then she wrote, But in our family... I noticed that rather than hugging less, which is what I and my mother and younger sister were doing, my dad started hugging more. I would see him hug my mother more and longer. And he would ask if he could hug me, and he'd hug me more and longer. And I'd see him hug my little sister more and longer. And when he hugged me, he always whispered, I want you to know this very day how much you mean to me. She said, he's a really good daddy. Where all of us decided we were going to love less, he decided he was going to love even more. And God said, that's a very, very good thing.